Part 4, Chapter 10 of The Gambler by Catherine Cecil Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part 4, Chapter 10. The keynote of Clodagh's character was impulse. She loved, she hated, she was generous, she was foolish, with a wide impulsiveness. When Nance had spoken of her engagement, her unselfish joy and relief in the security it promised had aroused a renewed desire for self-sacrifice, as represented by confession of her weakness. But a moment later, when Nance had spoken of Milbank's legacy, of her innocent joy in its existence, of her innocent desire for its possession, the wish had faltered. She had given her tacit agreement that the thousand pounds should be placed in Nancy's hands, the thousand pounds of which the greater portion already gone to swell the coffers of London tradesmen or fill the pockets of her friends. That was her position on the night of Nancy's confidence, and on the following morning she woke with an oppressive sense that action must be taken in some direction. The whole house-party, with the exception of Deerhurst, put in an appearance at the early breakfast. And as Clodagh entered the breakfast-room, her spirits rallied a little at the sight of the crowded table, and she took her place between George Tufnell and Serico with a sense of respite. Lady Diana, who was occupying her usual place at the head of the table, had borne Nance off to sit beside her, while Lady Frances, looking a little worn in the searching morning light, was keeping Mrs. Bathurst, Mansfeld, and Gore amused. The breakfast was not a long meal, and at its conclusion Lady Diana looked round the table. "'Now, people,' she said amiably, "'what are the morning's plans? You know you are none of you to forget my dance to-night and tire yourselves.' Mrs. Bathurst turned to her with her pretty, languid smile. "'I'm going to play croquet with Mr. Mansfeld,' she announced. "'Nice, lazy, old-fashioned croquet. We shall turn up at lunchtime.' "'And you, Walter?' Lady Diana asked. "'Will you drive over with me to Winchley? We might take Frances, and—again she looked round the party—and Miss Ashlyn.' But Nance glanced quickly down the table to where her sister sat. Clodagh caught the questioning look, and bent her head. "'Yes, go with Lady Diana,' she said affectionately. "'It's very sweet of her to take you.' Nance smiled shyly. "'I know,' she said, looking from Clodagh to her hostess. Lady Diana returned the smile. "'It's sweet of your sister to spare you to me.' While she was speaking, Serico turned to Clodagh. "'Will you give me the morning?' he said, in an undertone. She drew back and laughed a little. "'What a conceited suggestion! Fancy throwing my little sister over to spend the morning with you!' He looked at her unabashed, and, as Tufnell turned to address his neighbour, he bent close to her again. "'You're very hard on me. When will you be really properly kind?' "'Oh, sometime, perhaps,' Clodagh's tone was careless and light. "'This morning, then. Come for a ride with me.' She laughed once more and shook her head. I have a letter, a terrible business letter, that must be written, a letter to Mr. Barnard. Serico raised his eyebrows a trifle satirically. To Barney? Ah, then I shan't press the point. But how many dances am I to have to-night? Dances? You know I shan't dance. She danced down at her black linen dress. He smiled a little. Am I a schoolboy that I should want to dance? How many dances are we to sit out? To sit out? Oh, I... "'I'll tell you that when we sat out one.' "'Without looking at him, she pushed back her chair as Lady Diana rose. 
Then let that be the first dance. She nodded inconsequently. Perhaps the first dance. She stood, and joining the rest of the company, moved down the room. As she gained the door, Nance ran to her. "'Claude, darling, can't I stay with you?' Clodagh smiled down into the eager, upturned face. "'Not this morning. I have a business letter to write.' "'Then I must go?' Nancy's face fell. "'Must, darling.' "'But, Claude, you'll think of me and love me all the time you're writing the horrid thing?' Clodagh laughed. Then all at once her face looked grave. "'Dearest,' she said suddenly, "'you don't know how much.' and without explaining her words or waiting for Nance to speak again, she passed quickly across the hall and up the stairs. Four different times Clodagh began her letter to Barnard. Sitting by the writing-table close to the open window of her bedroom, she watched the various members of the house-party depart on their different ways. But the quieter and more deserted the house became, the more impossible it seemed to her to accomplish the task she had in hand. At last, with a gesture of despair, she tore up the half-written letters that lay strewn about her, and, rising from the table with a sigh of vexation, left the room, closing the door softly. With a frown of unhappiness and perplexity still upon her forehead, she descended the stairs, crossed the hall, and, passing round the back of the house, made her way to the rose-garden. The rose-garden at Tufnell was always a place of beauty, but in the month of July it was a paradise of scent and colour. Down its centre ran a long strip of close-cut lawn, flanked on either side by stone seats and stone nymphs and satyrs, brought from an old Italian garden. On the high wall that preserved to the place an absolute seclusion, a dozen peacocks sunned themselves gorgeously, while over the entire enclosure grew and climbed and drooped roses. Roses of every shade and of every size, roses that filled the air with a warm scent that seemed at once to mingle with and to hold the summer sun. She paused for an instant upon entering this enchanted garden, and drew a deep breath of involuntary delight. Then, walking slowly, as though haste might desecrate such beauty, she passed down the long, smooth lawn that formed an alley of greatness amid the pink and crimson of the flowers. Pausing at the farther end, she stood, soothed by the sights and scents about her, until suddenly a harsh, disturbed cry from one of the peacocks broke the spell. She turned sharply, and saw Deerhurst standing close behind her. "'I saw you from my dressing-room window,' he said, in answer to her look of surprise. "'Was it very presumptuous of me to follow you?' The cold, familiar voice banished the thought of the roses. Her vexations and perplexities came back upon her abruptly, causing her face to cloud over. "'No,' she said hastily. "'No, I think I—I'm glad to see you. "'I'm in a hopeless mood to-day. "'Things won't go right.' "'He took her hand and bent over it "'with even more than his usual deference, "'although his cold eyes shot a swift glance "'at her distressed face. "'But you must not say that,' he said softly. "'Things can always be compelled to go right.' "'She shook her head despondently. "'Not for me.' "'He freed her hand gently, and pointed to one of the stone seats that stood under the shadow of the rose-bushes. "'Shall we sit down?' he said. "'There's a great deal of repose to be found in this garden of Lady Diana's. She had it copied many years ago from my rose-garden at Ambley.' Clodagh looked up at him, as they moved together across the grass. "'Indeed,' she said, "'from your rose-garden.' "'Yes. 
She and Tufnell stayed with me at Ambley shortly after they were married, when my sister was alive, and Lady Diana fell in love with my rose garden. I remember I sent a couple of my gardeners down here to plant this one for her. It is an exact reproduction, on a smaller scale. There was silence while they seated themselves. Then Clodagh, looking meditatively in front of her at the evil face of one of the stone satires, spoke suddenly and impulsively. "'I envy you,' she said. "'You envy me?' There was a curious, almost an eager tone in Deerhurst's voice, but she was too preoccupied to hear it. "'All people are to be envied who have power and freedom. I get so tired of myself sometimes, so rebellious against myself.' I'm always doing the things I should not do, and failing to do the things I should. I'm hopeless. For a space he made no attempt to break in upon her mood. Then very quietly he bent forward and looked up into her face. What is worrying you? he asked in a whisper. Confession really is very good for the soul. For a moment she answered nothing. Then, yielding to an impulse, she met his scrutinising eyes. "'Oh, it's only a letter that won't let itself be written. "'One of those abominable letters that one has to write. "'Talking of it does no good.' "'No good? I'm not so sure of that. "'I believe in talking. Tell me about it.' Clayda laid her hand nervously on the arm of the seat. "'I have been stupid,' she said almost defiantly. "'I have overstepped my allowance. "'I must ask Mr. Barnard to advance me some money. "'And, and I somehow hate to do it.' "'Am I not a fool?' She laughed unsteadily, and turned to look at her companion. But he had drawn back into the shadow of the seat. "'Oh, it's childish, ridiculous. I am disgusted with myself.' Her glance again crossed the strip of green lawn to where the stone satire stood. Quite silently, dear Hurst bent forward again. "'What is the amount?' he asked softly. "'A thousand pounds.' "'And is Barnard such a very great friend?' Clodagh started. "'No! Oh, no! Why?' She turned quickly and looked at him. "'Because I wish to know why it should be Barnard.' There was a long silence in which she felt her heart beat uncomfortably fast. A sudden surprise, a sudden confusion, filled her. Then, through the confusion, she was conscious that Deerhurst was speaking again. "'Why should you think of Barnard?' he murmured. Barnard is not a rich man. To advance you a thousand pounds may possibly inconvenience him. Whereas a man who need not consider ways and means. Clodagh sat very still. Yes, but I think. And why think? He spoke calmly, considerately, without a tinge of disturbing emotion. Why think? Why write that troublesome letter? Why ask a favour when, by granting one? Granting one? Yes, when by granting a favour you can make everything smooth. Think what it would be to me, for instance, if some of the money I am saddled with were used to bring you happiness or peace. Think of the favour you would be doing me. She half rose, then sank back again. Oh, but I couldn't. How could I? And why not? Look, I have only to open my cheque-book. He very quietly drew a cheque-book from his breast-pocket. "'Find the all-powerful pen?' He searched for and produced a gold pen. "'And look!' He wrote rapidly for a moment, 
then held a fluttering white paper in front of Clodagh's eyes. Look! With a little start, a little cry of deprecation, she rose from her seat. In a flash of memory she recalled the night on the balcony at Venice, when he had kissed her hand. She recalled the letter she had found awaiting her in her room at the hotel. In sudden fear she glanced at him. Then her fear faltered. To her searching eyes he presented the same aspect that he had assumed since their first meeting in London, the aspect of a tried, deferential friend. "'How could I?' she asked again, but unconsciously her tone had weakened. For answer, Deerhurst folded up the cheque and held it out to her with a respectful, almost a formal, bow. "'By extending to me the merest act of friendship,' She sat very still, not attempting to take the cheque. I, I, I could not repay it before January, perhaps not entirely even then. January, or any time, I understand the art of patience. For one moment longer her uncertain glance wandered from the slip of paper to the glowing rose-bushes, from the roses to the cold, malignant face of the satire that confronted her across the strip of grass. You—you are very kind— "'In January, then?' Deerhurst bowed again, and in complete silence the cheque passed from his hand to hers. End of Part 4 Chapter 10